Welcome to Healthonomics, a podcast about health, economics, and policy. I'm your host, Ina Katsikas, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Nevada, Reno, in the economics department. Today, my guest is Dr. Clemens Hetchko. Clemens is an associate professor of economics at the University of Leeds in the UK. Clemens, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I'm really happy to have Clemens here. I actually met him a few months ago. He was presenting in a seminar series at my university, and I was so interested in his work. I thought I should bring him on the pod so I can ask him more questions. Um, so today we are talking about your paper titled, Does Worker Well-Being Adapt to a Pandemic? An event study based on high-frequency panel data. This paper is co-authored with Julia Schmidtke, Ronnie Schub, Gina Stefan, Michael Eide and Mario Lavez. But first, Clemens, tell me about your background in economics. Uh, well, so uh, originally I come from Germany and I studied economics in Berlin and also did my PhD there. And in the process specialized on labor economics and um, in particular, um, what we can learn from psychology about what matters to workers' well-being, their mental health, but also their decisions. So the idea was to incorporate insights from psychology in our labor market understanding as economists, basically. So to give you an example, I have studied for a long time now how identity and social norms help to explain the very low well-being that unemployed workers report. Apart from the labor market, I've also done studies on uh, voting and here again, trying to use uh, data on psychological traits, but this time in order to explain why voters would vote against their own economic interests. Um, so if you want an example for that, it would be Brexit perhaps here in the UK. Uh, so these are, yeah, well, two areas of research that I'm currently I'd say quite active on. So Clemens uh, identifies as a labor economist. And although this is a health economics podcast, I it was funny, we were having this conversation. In my head, I thought this was a health econ paper because I saw worker well-being, well-being health, let's all under the umbrella of health. And I realized it's really a labor-based paper. But I am interested in this paper because the intersection between labor and health is uh, so fascinating to me, and I think it's an important conversation that worker well-being is a huge part of uh, the labor market and the labor component. Um, so now we'll get into the paper. So what is the primary research question that you're investigating, and what are your overall highlighted findings from your paper? Yeah, let me first of all say I think you are totally right. This isn't only a labor paper. This is certainly also a health economics paper. And the reason for that is that we uh, look into the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on workers' well-being. And well-being here in particular also uh, comprises people's mental health. And of course, this is an, an important issue in health economics. Um, for, for several reasons, um, mental health is, of course, important in itself, but it also causes huge economic costs, um, in, in, for instance, because people uh, don't, cannot go to work when they are on poor mental health. 
um, uh, and so on and so forth. So um, this is certainly at the intersection of labor and health economics. Um, so what do we do? Um, um, as I said, um, we are interested in the impact of the pandemic on worker well-being, looking at life satisfaction, momentary happiness and mental health. And I think we will talk about these different uh, outcomes a bit more uh, later on. Uh, and um, more specifically, we wanted to learn whether workers um, get used to the pandemic, whether they adapt to the pandemic over time by looking at different waves uh, in Germany and estimating whether the mental health and well-being impact of the pandemic is less severe, less strong uh, during the second wave um, as compared to the first wave, and also looking at the time in between the two waves uh, of the pandemic. So um, what did we find? Well, we found that um, the pandemic reduces workers' mental health uh, quite substantially. We find much smaller effects uh, in terms of life satisfaction and also job satisfaction, family life satisfaction and momentary happiness. Um, and um, we observe adaptation. So with respect to all of these outcome measures, we observe that people when the first lockdown is over and uh, uh, numbers of infections come down, uh, also return to their pre-pandemic levels of, of well-being. So the impact is not lasting uh, very long, the impacts that we measure. Um, then, of course, with the second wave of the pandemic and um, yeah, reintroduced restrictions, basically, uh, we again observe a negative impact on mental health, but it's less strong than during the first wave. We don't observe any negative impact on life satisfaction anymore, uh, and also momentary happiness um, responds negatively, negatively again. So, um, in in these, with with respect to these outcomes, we observe adaptation. Uh, in the sense of what I just said, people seem to get used or adapt to the pandemic. Interestingly, one measure where we don't observe adaptation is job satisfaction. So um, comparing the time shortly after the first wave of the pandemic or during the first wave of the pandemic to 2019, when no one um, knew what was coming, uh, job satisfaction reduces to some extent. And then it stays at that lower level throughout the year 2020, um, even when the restrictions were partly lifted in this case in Germany, uh, and the numbers of infections were really low during the summer of 2020, job satisfaction uh, continued to be lower as compared to 2019. Uh, and so it also remained low during the second wave of the pandemic. So no adaptation here. So that was one exception from the, from the general impression that we got that people seem to adapt to uh, the pandemic. You mentioned in the introduction of the paper that uh, the pandemic hurts mental health. So what more do we know about this? And you also mentioned some evidence of this in Google searches, which I was really fascinated by. So could you tell me some details about what do we know about how the pandemic hurts mental health via Google searches or other identification mechanisms? There's a really fascinating paper by uh, Brodeur, I, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, and, and co-authors 
um, published in 2021. And they were very quick after the uh, pandemic hit. Basically, they looked uh, into Google searches in North America, in the US, but also in Western Europe and, and other countries. And they found that so in these first months of the pandemic, say February, March, April 2020, people increasingly started to search for terms such as loneliness, but also boredom and sadness. So this is sort of a first indication that there was a negative mental health impact um, uh, of the pandemic. Of course, at the time, using these Google searches, um, you don't really know how how severe, how big this impact is. For this, you need other men measures of mental health. But it was sort of a first indication that the worry that everyone had that the pandemic would have a very negative impact on people's mental health was actually true. Yeah, so um, the worry was justified. And um, so what, what other studies have done since then is that they have looked into um, more precise measures of mental health. So these are usually questionnaire-based surveys. And then people are asked, okay, how, how have you felt over the last couple of days or weeks? Have you slept well? Have you been uh, worried a lot? Um, did you experience anxieties? Um, have things bothered you that usually wouldn't bother you? Uh, these kinds of questions. And then um, these multiple item measures are basically aggregated and collapsed into one number uh, of, of mental health or mental ill health sometimes also. Uh, and then you can could also see that the pandemic seems, seems to have had a negative impact at the beginning. Uh, and most studies try to compare basically 2020, what they observed, to some other uh, pre-pandemic years such as 2019 or the average um, from, say, 2017 to 2019 or something like that. I was just reading a paper uh, a few weeks ago. Um, I think it was a Ember working paper by Barker ETL. And uh, they talked about mental health therapy as a strategy for increasing human capital. And it was a RCT, uh, randomized control trial, done in Ghana. And I think what's so important about looking at the mental health aspect of labor is that it has downstream economic consequences. If people are, you know, suffering from high frequency anxiety symptoms or depression symptoms, that means more days out of the office, less days of productivity. And so this is such an important topic. It's not just... Um, mental health is no longer just a luxury item that we can observe from afar. It's now present, affecting our workers and affecting um, the labor workforce. So it's important to look at. I remember talking to you about this topic, or I was asking you about this when you were presenting in the seminar about subjective versus objective well-being, um, because in my head, I just think of the word well-being. I don't think of a definition of subjective versus objective. Um, so you evaluate subjective well-being versus objective well-being. So what do these two metrics indicate exactly, and how are they measured, or how do you measure it in your paper? So let's start perhaps with objective well-being. So let's think about this as a multidimensional measure of quality of life, where we would basically decide as researchers uh, what makes for quality of life. So uh, income, perhaps, um, being in good physical health, 
environmental conditions, so air quality, but also safety, living in a safe neighborhood, all these kinds of objectively measurable uh, indicators could make up our measure of, um, of objective quality of life. Uh, and of course, this is interesting to look at, but it also means that we are basically making a, yeah, a value judgment about what should matter to people, the number of things that I've just mentioned. Um, uh, while at the same time, I think people can be very depressed and in, in, poor, in a poor mental state doing not well. Um, when they have all these kinds of things, when they are perhaps rich, um, have high education and live in a safe neighborhood and so on and so forth, uh, they can still be doing very, un yeah, can, can still be unwell and, uh, and even depressed sometimes. And that is why researchers have turned to uh, data on subjective well-being, where, where we are not trying to define from the outside what should matter to people, um, we are asking people directly, how are you doing? Um, how satisfied are you with your life? This is one measure that we use in the paper as well. How satisfied are you with your job, with your leisure time, with your family life, um, these kinds of things. Uh, and um, they are basically termed Evaluate life evaluation, so subjective measures of life evaluation. And what usually happens and should happen is that in the moment that you are asked and people are asked about how satisfied are you with your life in general, um, people should think about their past accomplishments and their current state, um, how happy they are with their life and how it's going, uh, and maybe also about their future expectations. And then we have a good measure of life evaluation, which probably is affected by all of these objective things to some extent, um, but at the same time also considers the subjective component that um, how we are doing often does not only depend on objectively measurable circumstances of life. So this is one way of uh, measuring subjective well-being, life evaluation. Another way is momentary happiness. And that is something that is completely, completely different, I would argue, because it's not about how you think your life is going. It's more how you actually feel over the course of the day. So what we've done in this study is that uh, people had smartphones and they were so surveyed using a smartphone app. And then the app would notify them and ask them, um, how are you doing currently? How happy do you feel? Um, do you feel restless? Do you feel calm? Do you feel unhappy? So this is about actual experience, experiential happiness or momentary happiness. And this third one, as I've already described, is uh, mental health, which is also subjective because it's also based on questionnaires and surveys where people are asked, okay, have you slept well, um, and so on and so forth. The, the number of items that I mentioned before, uh, trying to elicit whether people have felt lonely or anxious uh, and so on. So essentially, subjective well-being is, from my own perspective, how is my well-being doing, whereas objective well-being is, from the outside, what does your life look like? Do you have stable income, stable housing, and food security? So two very different uh, metrics of well-being. 
I'm curious, what do we know from literature? How much does job satisfaction play into an individual's overall happiness? Um, very much so. So job satisfaction is one of the probably most important determinants of an overall measure of well-being. What matters even slightly more is health satisfaction. But apart from that, you won't find any other, so to speak, satisfaction with a certain area of life, what we also call domain satisfaction, that is as strongly correlated with your overall well-being as is job satisfaction. So it plays a pretty significant role is what I'm hearing. So this leads me into my next question, getting more into your paper and worker well-being. So the thing that you're measuring is worker adaptation. What indicators do you use to measure adaptation? Um, How do you define it in the paper? And do you think adaptation is a good or a bad thing for workers in the case of a pandemic? So... I think the way we define it is adaptation is basically an observation over time. So we look at life satisfaction data, for instance, observe that life satisfaction reduces uh, for some time at the time when the pandemic hits. So beginning of March 2020 in Germany. Um, And then after two weeks, after one month, we observe that people return to their pre-pandemic level of life satisfaction. And this is how we say that we observe uh, adaptation. So it's really the evolution of well-being over time. And when a shock hits, whether afterwards we observe that people seem to, if it's a negative shock, Uh, seem to recover and return to their level of well-being that they reported beforehand. So it's, first of all, it's an observation, uh, in this case, an empirical observation over time. Then, of course, when you talk more about the psychological foundations of adaptation, then there are different mechanisms going on. So there is something like automatic habituation, Um, that we are observing in biology quite often, for instance, when we see that people get used to different um, environmental circumstances. The light changes, it's getting darker, but over time we are getting used to this uh, almost automatically or to different noise levels. We seem to get used over time. At the beginning, it impacts us more than um, after a certain amount of time because we, we because of this habituation. And this is something that might be happening with negative life events such as the pandemic as well, uh, and could be one explanation. Another explanation simply for observed adaptation can be that the pandemic changes. So the health threat reduces because, for instance, the number of infections uh, go down or the restrictions are lifted and therefore people recover. And that is one reason why we also compared the first wave of the pandemic with the second wave, with the winter wave in Germany in the same year, because we wanted to know, is it just that the restrictions have been lifted partly, or is it really that people seem to get used almost automatically to something that they've already experienced before? Uh, In this case, the pandemic um, that they have experienced during spring 2020, Um, Is it the same if it's the second time round um, at the end of the year 2020? So this is basically the way we define or measure adaptation. 
So what's interesting about talking about adaptation is I'm evaluating myself as we're having this interview and thinking about how I've adapted in my work techniques. And it's funny you mentioned about adapting to sound because I essentially work from home every day unless if I'm teaching, I'll be on campus. And my home office is incredibly quiet. I just have a dog who doesn't bark and I've completely adapted to like a living in a silent room. And now when I'm uh, teaching or I'm in a room with high volume, it's it's a shock to me. So that's interesting that you mentioned that. I've absolutely, I'm, would be a good test subject in an experiment that would measure that because I have completely adapted to low noise um, altogether. So now I want to get into the data that you work with, which is high frequency panel data. So for all of our grad students out there, could you explain um, what is high frequency panel data? What makes this high frequency uh, for example we need we kind of understand what panel data is but what is making this high frequency how often are people getting interviewed so let's talk about the data that you use so the short answer to this question is that we use monthly panel data so the participants in our survey these workers are interviewed on a monthly basis the same workers again and again over the course of two years here in this case. Why is this high frequency? Well, if you are a financial economist and you are studying stock market data, for instance, this is not high frequency. Then you are used to using uh, daily data uh, and monthly data is probably not something that you, know, you would be impressed with very much. On the other hand, we come from um, the literature on well-being and labor markets uh, or health. And here, what people have available is usually data where people are observed or interviewed on a yearly basis. So there are these huge household panel data sets where uh, interviewers come to households once a year and then they interview basically the whole family, all household members, and these data then end up in the big survey. And this, you know, repeatedly happens uh, once a year. But these are very long interviews. It's very burdensome for the participants. And therefore, you cannot do that more often than on a yearly basis, maybe every six months. But what researchers usually have available is yearly data. And therefore, we are so bold in calling our data high frequency data here because it's really unusual that we have these monthly data uh, about you know people's circumstances of life and their well-being and their attitudes and so on and so forth so why does it work it works because we are using a smartphone app uh, which makes it much easier for people to participate on a monthly basis because they can complete these questionnaires um, you know, in breaks, uh, when they are on the bus, on public transport, and when it is convenient for them. They don't have to have an appointment with an interviewer, whether it's via telephone or whether it's a, you know, personal face-to-face -face interview in people's houses. All of that is not necessary uh, because we are using a smartphone app here in this case. Uh, and this allows us to survey people at much higher frequency as compared to what the previous literature on well-being uh, and mental health uh, and, and so on could do uh, because they relied on yearly data. What populations does this data cover in terms of countries? Like who has access? I'm just curious, who has access to this smartphone app? Um, 
what are your what are your confinements or data constraints in terms of where these people are living that you're interviewing? So we started this a couple of years ago, and of course, um, when you run your own survey, then you have your own research question in mind. And this one, of course, we didn't know about the pandemic at the time, uh, as I said, was a couple of years ago in 2017. What we wanted to know is we wanted to learn about people's job search uh, and how people's job search experience impacts their subjective well-being. So we surveyed workers that had registered for job search with the employment agency in in Germany. And then we followed them, as I said, on a monthly basis over a couple of years. Now, of course, these workers, most of them are employed. Some of them have transitioned into other statuses, such as unemployment or retirement, since the time when, when they started participating in our survey. But when you ask about the population, it's basically workers in Germany, and they come from all parts of Germany, and they're perfectly representative of the working population in Germany. This is because some people are more willing to participate in such a survey than others. Um, So we have a higher level of education, for instance, on average um, in, in the survey as compared to the whole of the German working population. On the one hand, on the other hand, we still represent all groups. So we have low skilled workers, high skilled workers. Uh, in all types of uh, education. And the same can be said about age groups and gender, of course, and income groups and so on and so forth. This data is reminding me of a similar survey in the U.S. that data I'm working with right now for all the grad students listening. It's called the Household Pulse Survey, and it is a monthly, uh, it's not a panel data, it's repeated cross-sectionals. So different households are interviewed in each wave, but they ask similar questions to well-being, anxiety, and uh, depression symptoms, and employment and healthcare insurance status. Um, so for grad students listening, if you want to set up a similar model or a similar question that you want to answer using domestic data, I would highly recommend the household pulse survey data. So back to your paper now, what identification method do you use to answer your research questions? So we take these data, the and I should probably because you just mentioned your data, which sounds very interesting. So ours are called the German job search panel. Uh, And of course, you can also obtain further information about that uh, on the internet, we have published a method report, which is accessible for everyone. So the German job search panel, we take these data uh, and then run what is called a panel estimation with individual fixed effects. I think what people who are listening to us um, probably understand is like a big regression uh, with many, many observations. Um, and then left-hand side variable, so a dependent variable that we want to explain. In our case, these different measures of well-being, which we estimate separately, say life satisfaction, for instance. And on the right-hand side, a number of independent variables, so the determinants of life satisfaction with which we want to explain our outcome. So what is does it mean to use panel data in this context? It means that the observations are people times the interviews, the many interviews that we have for the same person. So it's people times their interviews. 
one observation is not just one person. It can be one person at different points in time. And this allows you to uh, consider, for instance, the individual fixed effect, uh, which then controls for stable characteristics. So if, for instance, your, your, your well-being and my well-being will be largely determined by something like our socialization, our personality, our genetic makeup, maybe even. Um, and these are stable characteristics. So they don't change much over um, anymore after the age of, say, 20. Yeah, genetic makeup, of course, doesn't change anymore. But also personality and these other things uh, seem to be very stable in adult life. Now, of course, if you want to get rid of the influence of these stable characteristics, which in the case of well-being at least are very, very important determinants, um, then it's nice to be able to control for a fixed effect, uh, an individual fixed effect, uh, which panel data allows because it has the same people over time. What is most important for us is that we basically uh, calculate this individual fixed effect as the level of well-being in the same people over the year of 2019, which is our baseline level of well-being, which is the pre-pandemic level of well-being. And then we compare um, using dummy variables for each month of 2020, uh, people's well-being um, to their baseline level that they reported in 2019. A dummy variable is basically January 2020, February 2020, March 2020, and so on and so forth. And the estimated coefficient gives us the deviation of a person's well-being from the average of their well-being over the 12 months in 2019. And so we can pretty much identify um, how different their well-being was when the pandemic hit in March 2020. Uh, the locked, first lockdown was introduced at the same time. Then in April, during the first lockdown, in May 2020, when the restrictions were partly lifted again, June, July, and so on and so forth. So these monthly coefficients, the coefficients of the monthly dummy variables, give us the well-being effect at each point in time over the year 2020. And in particular, also again, later uh, in the year, uh, in fall, when the numbers of infections rose again in Germany and a second lockdown was introduced, uh, we used these monthly dummy variables in order to identify whether the second wave of the pandemic uh, was as harmful for mental health and well-being as was the, the first wave uh, of the pandemic. So what do we need to control for here? I mentioned the individual fixed effect, of course. Um, we also need to control for seasonal effects, which, which is possible because um, we have these 2019 data. So we can, for instance, control for spring, summer, fall, winter, uh, how these different seasons uh, affect people's well-being. Uh, and then we control for a couple of probably less important uh, variables, such as how long the person has participated in our panel so far, how many months the person has participated in the panel, um, but also um, whether they have a partner, um, their income, these kinds of things we, we could uh, control here. 
But because we have these monthly data and these things hardly change over, you know, short periods of time, um, these controls turn out to be not very important for the effects that we estimate. So it's important to consider the individual fixed effects and the seasons and the additional controls, they then don't change much uh, when it comes to the coefficients we are interested in. Yeah? So the coefficients of these monthly dummy variables, they don't change anymore when we add these additional controls. I just finished writing my lecture notes for my statistics students this semester, and I'm teaching them about dummy variables. So I'm going to recommend that they listen to this podcast so they can hear about dummy variables in action. Um, I'm curious, uh, based on your estimates and the data, what do you find is mostly hindering or preventing workers from developing adaptation techniques or developing any adaptation at all? What do you find is preventing that? Well, I think this brings us back to a question that you've that you asked actually before, and I didn't really answer whether adaptation is a good thing or a bad thing. Um, so when it comes to well-being, we very often observe adaptation irrespective uh, of the specific life event that we look at. So it can be a positive life event like marriage. I think most people would agree that is a positive life event. And actually we observe that uh, in the data. So well-being increases before marriage, but then we observe adaptation. So after a couple of years, the positive effect of marriage on well-being um, has reduced and married people who have been married for quite some time are not necessarily uh, happier than they had been before they married. So this is adaptation. And here, I'd say it's not necessarily a good thing because we would want people to continue to be happier because of the change that happened, if it was such a positive change, at least uh, we would want that. When it comes to negative life events, and I would mention the death of spouse here, for instance, or chronic illness, a negative health shock, uh, we also op often observe adaptation, not completely. So, of course, people are very, very unhappy and dissatisfied when they experience a negative health shock or um, the, the death of a partner or relative. Uh, at the beginning, but then over time, they also seem to adapt to it and regain some some part of their well-being uh, over time, which I think is a good thing because it means that they um, recover from the very bad state that they have been uh, in in uh, at the beginning, at least after the negative shock. So let's think about the pandemic as a negative life event, because as I said, previous studies and also our studies show that uh, at least the mental health impact is clearly negative. Then adaptation is a good thing. And um, in general, what we can say is that what helps with adaptation is coping. So people who can, for instance, rely on friends and family members, um, or have generally also good individual ways of coping with difficulties in life uh, and recovering from a negative shock based on their individual resources. Of course, these things then help to regain well-being and uh, become better off over time. So I mentioned family and friends uh, and good health uh, obviously helps also 
Also personality plays an important role. So some personalities are better able to adapt to negative events and uh, other personalities. So these kinds of things are, are important. Uh, and of course, with positive life events, it would be a completely different story. Huh? So there are different mechanisms of adaptation uh, happening uh, with positive life events. But as the pandemic is a negative event, I think we should stick to um, these coping resources that help with negative life events. So what I'm hearing from you is that uh, social circles and networks are key in helping people adapt to the pandemic. And this is, I find this in my research, I'm interested in the health of older adults. And I'm looking at the propensity for an older adult to not take care of themselves in their own home uh, in a case of self-neglect. And across the board, I find in all the literature, if an older adult has social circles and cohesion and uh, social and familial support, they are far less likely to end up in the hospital due to an injury that they incurred in their own home. So social circles, friends are very important, especially during a pandemic. So we kind of already talked about your event study design and the individual specific fixed effects. And we also talked about things that you're controlling for in the model, such as the seasonality and the individual. What are your results and how do we know that these results you're finding are true estimates because you've controlled for all your potential confounders? Building on the summary that I gave in the beginning, basically, um, we find that the mental health impact is relatively strong and is negative. Um, as I said, it also disappears over time and is less strong during the second wave of the pandemic. Then the life satisfaction impact is relatively small and disappears after two weeks. Uh, and momentary happiness, so how people experience their, their days, um, here we also have this, this negative effect. Um, so why um, do we believe that these are actually effects of the, of the pandemic? So what these monthly data allow us is that we can really zoom in uh, around the time of the, uh, of the event. So when the pandemic hits, of course, as I said, beginning of March, we can directly compare this to people's well-being in the month beforehand. And we basically need to make the assumption that there was no other uh, negative event that... Um, you know, hit at the same time that happened at the same time and affected all of these workers at the same time. Of course, at the individual level, other things might have happened at the same time, but these should be random to basically on average for the sample, this should be random because some people are affected, some people are not affected um, and they, they are affected at different points in time. So when we look at a specific point in time, this should be random. Uh, and therefore, we think that we actually observe uh, an effect of the pandemic here. Of course, the, the longer or farther we go into the year 2020, the more other systematic changes in um, affecting the German workforce, for instance, could have had an influence on, on people's well-being. So we must be more cautious 
um, when we interpret the coefficients of, so to speak, later time dummy variables uh, later in the year 2020, because other things might have happened as well uh, and might have had an influence. However, it's really this coincidence that we observe First, we observe adaptation after the first wave of the pandemic. So people are back at the level of well-being that they reported in 2019. And then the number of infections goes up again, rises again. The second lockdown is introduced. And exactly at that time, we observe negative well-being effects again, which makes me believe that we are actually picking up the effect of the pandemic here also during the second wave. Uh, it's just this coincidence in terms of time that uh, makes us believe that in connection with the fact that we are not just looking at yearly data, but monthly data. So we can compare, okay, uh, what happened, for instance, between August, September, October, November 2020, when did the number of infections increase again? When was the lockdown in introduced again? Uh, and exactly at these points in time, we observe that uh, well-being reduces and mental health reduces again. So given all of the work that you've done on this topic, what do you think are some future research questions that either you are interested in or a grad student might be interested in investigating? That's a very good question. What we cannot really learn in our study about is, uh, for instance, the, the heterogeneity, so the group differences that might explain why some people are better able to adapt to the pandemic than others. I mentioned that we observe job satisfaction is something that did not recover over time. So job satisfaction remained low over the course of the year 2020. Why was that? Why did people adapt in terms of mental health and life satisfaction, but not in terms of job satisfaction? Then for some countries we observe um, group differences such as um, that older people were actually doing, so not in our study, but in other studies, were actually doing better than younger people during the pandemic. This is interesting because actually you would think because of the health threat that COVID poses, older people should be more worried, should be more concerned about the pandemic. It should make them more anxious and therefore also uh, affect their mental health stronger. But that's not the case. It's younger people who suffer more. And of course, we can relate this to the restrictions perhaps and that they are, you know, maybe have more contexts that have been restricted or that their lives were affected more. So we can, we can basically speculate why younger people are uh, affected more than older people. But um, actually identifying what causes these differences between the different age groups, I think is, is quite interesting and needs to be narrowed down more and actually pinpointed and identified. These group differences is, is, um, are important. Job satisfaction is important. It's perhaps also somewhat surprising why people you, you do not adapt in terms of job satisfaction. Another thing that um, we could think about are gender differences. For instance, in our data, we do not observe that 
women would do worse than men during the pandemic uh, in terms of their mental health. Other studies find that. So does it have to do with the populations we look at, German data, other countries? Does it have to do with the fact that we look at workers? I don't know. So uh, many questions uh, in relation to different groups and how they are doing during the pandemic uh, remain unanswered and I think are, are really interesting. I would be really interested in answering that question about why older age groups are seemingly doing better in terms of mental health compared to younger age groups. That is so fascinating and kind of peculiar to me. So thanks for that recommendation. Thank you for talking with me today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Today, my guest has been Dr. Clemens Hetchko. Thank you very much. This is Healthonomics. For more, go to healthonomics.co, where you can comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. I'm your host, Aina Katsikas. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.